Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode. It's one from our sister podcast, The Horn. And in it, Alan Boswell, the host, talks to another of our Crisis Group colleagues, Michael Wahid Hanna, about Egypt's interests in Sudan. It's not a perspective you get in many other places, so we thought it would be good to also post it here. Next week, we'll be back with an episode on the Sudan War itself. So please do join us for that. And in the meantime, I hope you find this useful. Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm speaking with my colleague, Michael Wahid Hanna, the director of Crisis Group's work on U.S. foreign policy and an expert on Egypt. He's on the show today to speak about Egypt's complicated role in Sudan and the Horn of Africa more generally. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Good to be with you. So we've had you know a number of interesting conversations in the past year about Egypt and Sudan, and I thought it'd be you know really great for our listeners to also benefit from this. Um, so let's start off first of all with you know just why does Sudan matter for Egypt? Yeah, I mean these are countries that have been bound historically. So these were two countries that at one point were potentially going to form a union in the kind of post-colonial world. And so their political fates have been tied for decades now. But of course, the Nile connects these two countries. And and for Egypt, from a very early stage, there was a focus on Sudan because of Egypt's vulnerability to water issues. And so this is a long-standing theme in Egypt's relations with Sudan and its regional policies in recent years been under much scrutiny with construction of the the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia. So water is central to this equation, but there are a host of other issues having to do with stability in Sudan, with Sudan's ties to, to Islamist groups. There's a border dispute that has flashed up at, at various points. And Egypt really worries about the kind of continuity of central states in the kind of post-uprisings environment. And we can unpack all of these as we discuss further. And of course, in recent weeks with the, with the outbreak of the fighting, very concretely, we've seen perhaps upwards of, of several hundred thousand refugees crossing north. So there's a real tangible link to what happens in Sudan in terms of Egypt's stability as well. Now, Egypt, in some ways, was a co-colonizer of sorts in Sudan under the the Anglo-Egyptian condominium and opposed Sudanese independence, or at least the, the British plan to give Sudan independence at the time. How much does that history, the hangover from that history, still affect Egypt's view of Sudan and its own role there as a political actor? There is a kind of paternalistic air. And as you mentioned, the condominium was a pretty strange setup, but the question of Sudan was when the British effectively expelled the Egyptians from many of their administrative roles in Sudan, the question of what would happen with Sudan as as Egypt is fighting its own anti-colonial struggle against the British, it is strangely at the same time asserting Egyptian nationalist ideas about Egypt's role in Sudan. So this question of Sudan is bound up with, with early formation of Egyptian nationalism and of course, there is a corresponding reaction. And so the ways in which Sudan creates its own national identity is also bound up, of course, with the, with the anti-colonial struggle against the British, but also that there's this question of Egypt's role. 
you know, this history is fraught. Egypt's a much bigger country. Egypt had the dominant role during the period of, of the condominium with, with the British, and so a dominant role in, in Sudan vis-a-vis the Sudanese. And so th- those, those memories are alive. I think Egypt is also conscious of that. It doesn't always act in a way that is sensitive to, to those historical associations, but I think Egypt understands that it's it's the way it proceeds in in Sudan is, is potentially going to activate certain kinds of historical antibodies because of of, of that shared past history. Um, but you know, I do I do think it's relevant. Um, obviously, there are more events that are um, creating n- a new sense of Egypt's role. Um, but you know, those those old themes uh, emerge from time to time. How was Cairo's relations with the Sudanese government under Omar al-Bashir's time? Yeah, I mean, there was a document that the foreign ministry released not so long ago that described it as a period of Cold War. So not good relations, for the most part. I think most famously, there is the assassination attempt on Hosni Mubarak and and Addis Ababa in in 1995, and, and the Egyptians directly allege that elements of, of Sudanese intelligence supported that assassination plot logistically and, and financially. So you know, relations really crashed. They eventually normalized relations again, but that's the most conspicuous of the tensions. But there are others, questions about Sudan's relations with other Islamist groups. Of course, Osama bin Laden was in, in Sudan prior to going to Afghanistan. And questions about its links with with the Muslim Brothers at a, at a later point, particularly after the July 2013 coup, where some Egyptian Islamists flee to Sudan. Questions about its relations with Iran before Sudan under Bashir severed its relations with Iran, as when it joined the, the Saudi-led war effort in Yemen, it, it styled itself as a member of the of the Axis of, of Resistance. And and that actually had real impact on the ground for, for Egypt because Sudan was a staging ground for weapon smuggling, some of which was, was destined for for Gaza. So it's a long set of issues. You add in the dispute around the Halab Triangle, and this is these this is the kind of backdrop to to the bilateral relationship for much of the Bashir era, and it's a difficult relationship. So it ebbs and flows. I think Egypt can't really go without having normalized relations with Sudan. There are too many bilateral shared issues, but it's been a fraught relationship. Hmm. And so Egypt wasn't, you know, very sad to see Bashir go in 2019. But but how did they respond to that popular uprising and General Burhan and General Hemeti taking control of the country? Uncertainty, instability, you know, these are things that are, that are always going to worry Egypt. So yes, obviously, based on all of that previous history, there was no great sadness to see Bashir basically ousted. But they are, they are deeply concerned about, about political developments since the ouster of, of Bashir. And they, and we'll, as we'll unpack a bit later, they have really focused on on one approach to to ensuring the kinds of stability that they are after and looking for alignment on certain is- issues, the GERD most prominently, 
But th- this this period of flux has not been one that has been easy for Cairo to handle, and a, a period really in, in which the lack of depth of, of relationships with some of the parties has really has really been exposed, and that's been a challenge for Egyptian diplomacy. Mm. Now, I'd say most you know Sudanese and other diplomats who we talk to, you know, they they see Egypt as essentially just a straight up backer of Burhan of the army of wanting a sort of similar strongman military rule in Sudan that Sisi's government has put forward in in Egypt. Is that, is that more or less accurate, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a crude characterization. I, I think it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that. But at the bottom line is that, yes, Egypt has thrown its weight behind Burhan. I think some have posited this as a kind of ideological commitment, a kind of authoritarian play against the possibility of democratic rule in Sudan. I'm not convinced of that. I mean, I I think Egyptian regional policy has become more pragmatic in in recent years. I think there was a period of time when, when there was a kind of ideological attachment in terms of how it dealt with regional issues Islamism, democracy, etc. I'm not sure that's the case now. I think it's a it's a more practical question about reliability and dealing with known commodities, with known views about key issues. But yes, I think it, I think it's fair to say that Egypt has been supportive of the Sudanese armed forces, supportive of Burhan, and as I'm sure we'll get into deeply, deeply suspicious of Hemeti for a variety of reasons. And I I think at core, they do want to see a strong central state, a strong central authority. And Burhan, again, is a known commodity, someone who has, has trained in Cairo, somebody that there are previously existing relationships with. And of course, Cairo has not been at all supportive of really of of transition to civilian rule, the other kind of component to to this political process. And so, yeah, I think that characterization is probably fair. You know, the question I get asked a lot on Egypt, Sudan, um, as I'm sure you do, is this question of, you know, why would Egypt back Burhan when when the army is also seen as the repository, if you will, of a lot of these Bashir-era Islamists. How do you sort of explain that? And, you know, how do Egyptian officials you talk to talk about that? Yeah, so I mean, I, two ways. I think one is there are there is a hierarchy of priorities. And so this is something that, of course, is a, a concern to Egypt. Their anti-Islamism has softened a bit in the immediate post-coup years, it was it was a kind of doctrine that that really drove the way it dealt with the region, whether it be the the specter of Islamist groups in in Libya, whether it, it, it Islamist groups in in Gaza and elsewhere. I mean, even the way it, it approached the Syrian civil war, anti militancy and anti Islamism was the kind of defining feature of of Egyptian regional policy. Egypt has softened a bit, right? It's reestablished its relations with the Islamist groups in Gaza and has begun mediating among them. It's softened its its political positions and come to some kind of basic understandings with Turkey and Libya. And, and similarly, I think it's become more pragmatic about dealing with Islamist actors in, in Sudan. 
That being said, it is a concern. And when you raise this with Egyptian diplomats, they say, yes, it's a concern. It's one we think we can manage, but we have bigger priorities. And obviously, again, GERD is at the top of that list. And, and we've seen movement from Sudan on GERD issues, although there's been a, a little bit of a shift in, in more recent months. But GERD is high on that list. And so that's the hierarchy of sort of, of, of an, and priority in terms of interests. And this, this question of the central state and the fact that the, the rapid support forces exist outside, really, the, the kind of authority of, of, of a central government, that this is effectively a, a militia group that, of course, has been nurtured by Bashir previously. But this is something that is that's really a big concern for Cairo, the idea of this actor existing in this way and, and potentially wielding power outside the boundaries and, and control of a central state. And so you, you add all those up, and, and yes, the, the rehabilitation of old guard Islamists under Burhan, who also needs to create his own support base, absolutely is a concern, and it's something that Egypt definitely keeps a close eye on. But when you weigh it against these other considerations, I think it's something that they have chosen to, to try to manage and as opposed to having it lead in terms of their how they approach the country. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to, to highlight what you said there about GERD because, you know, I think oftentimes this dispute is boiled down to relations between Egypt and Ethiopia and, and people talk, you know, hyperbolically about, you know, the potential of perhaps some, some interstate conflict. But I think, you know, the more destabilizing element we've often found in our work is the way it dominates regional diplomacy, you know, in, in the way you just described, it puts Sudan essentially in the crosshair between Egypt and and Ethiopia, among other regional repercussions. So you started to talk there about how Cairo views Hemeti and the rapid support forces. Why exactly has Egypt continued to more or less uh, oppose Hemeti, oppose the RSF? Yeah, and I mean, Hemeti has has tried, has have been overtures from from his side to the Egyptians, in an, in an effort to kind of improve improve relations and, and and perhaps change Egypt's view of of the RSF, in the kind of destabilizing environment that was the 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 region in the post uh, post uprisings. There, there was a kind of self serving refrain that Egypt often told its own people and, and spoke about very candidly and again self-serving but there was and there's there's an element of, of reality in terms of of the, the of Cairo's worldview about the the necessity of strong states um, you know the refrain was without basically the, the the coup and the military's intervention in Egyptian politics in 2013 Egypt might have gone the way of, of Libya Iraq or Syria and so there is a strong belief about the necessity of preserving states and states and state authority. And the RSF in that context is seen as a kind of wild card, that something that grew outside the system, that, that there are no real checks or, uh, against that kind of power. And so this question of, of how to integrate uh, or not the RSF into the Sudanese armed forces becomes a very big issue, obviously, for the, for the Sudanese armed forces, but also for Egypt. And Egypt, at, at core, Egypt is very suspicious. It just doesn't trust Hemeti. And there is the overlay of Hemeti's ties with other actors. 
There is regional competition that has happened so far in contained fashion, thankfully. But there is added suspicion because of those links. The, the most prominent ties are with the UAE, coming really out of the engagement in, in Yemen and RSF's role there in support of the Saudi-led war effort. So all of that in combination has created really deep-seated suspicion on the part of Cairo with respect to the RSF. And so jumping through some some history here, um, of course, there was the coup in 2021 in which Burhan and Hameti dissolved the civilian government. And then you had this uh, essentially year-long negotiation process uh, which eventually produced a uh, this December 2022 uh, framework agreement in which the army on paper promised to restore civilian rule in Sudan. And then the negotiations after that over the subsequent months is, you know, is, is what essentially eventually exploded into this terrible conflict that we're watching now. Um, how did Egypt respond to this December framework agreement to restore civilian rule, given its preference for Burhan and the army? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in one sense, I think they felt frozen out of that, that diplomacy, whether there was a way to include Egypt or not, separate question. But Egypt felt isolated at that moment. And of course, they didn't react well. And they, they tried to create their own kind of parallel process that was rejected by Sudanese civilians and was seen as a, an, an unhelpful distraction by most of the engaged diplomatic community. And they're cobbling together some disaffected political actors, many of whom had supported the initial coup in 2021. Some of the signatories to the Juba peace agreement worried about what what their fate would look like in a, in a kind of post-transition reality and whether the, some of their gains would be erased. But it was seen as, as spoiling behavior by by many. And so it was a very clumsy way to try to go about uh, asserting a continuing role, and and I think one that, that really did backfire and further cemented bad blood between Egypt and Sudanese civilians and those who have been engaged in, in, the, in the political process. And so hard to, to look at what came out of that and, and on balance think that that was a, that was a particularly savvy move by Cairo. Mm. And you mentioned Egypt feeling sidelined diplomatically. Of course, the, the, that agreement was largely brokered by the Quad, which is the US, the UK, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, although primarily by the US and Saudis especially. So Egypt, you know, clearly not very pleased with with there being a Quad and it not being in it. Um, you know, w- w- what's the history there from your understanding about why it isn't part of the Quad or didn't, you know, become part of the Quad? And how does Egypt, you know, view those Gulf factors, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which, you know, have, have been allies of Cairo for some time, but, you know, are more and more influential in the on the Horn of Africa side of the Red Sea. Yeah, I mean, what to do with Cairo, I know, is, is, is also a current question about how to approach current efforts to, to deal with the outbreak of fighting. And so this, this is hardly resolved. And I think some American diplomats see Cairo as too invested and too much of a an interested party and you know there there was suspicion at the time of the coup itself that Egypt was not only supportive but potentially involved and 
I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I, I you know, there's been a lot of conflicting coverage of of this issue, and um, but what we can say is that Egypt was studiously neutral in effect after after the coup. I think the Quad statement immediately after the coup and the Quad position was notable in that the UAE and and Saudi were were seen publicly condemning the coup, no, very notable at the time. Whether that was reflected in how they engaged the country in, in practice, again, a separate issue. But that was not, I, I don't think that was something that, that Egypt could have signed up for. So I think there's, there's practical considerations about perhaps why Egypt was, was outside. But the existence of the Quad and, <clears throat> and, and the fact of Egypt's absence from, from that, this kind of primary vehicle for U.S.-led diplomacy on Sudan is, is felt very keenly in Cairo. And, and as you mentioned, the role of, of Saudi and, and UAE is a complicated one for Egypt. These are strained relations at the moment. And Cairo's concerns about the, the Gulf role in Sudan is bound up with much broader issues about its role in the region. Egypt is the most populous Arab country. It has, a, for many decades, had a kind of privileged political and cultural role. And we are a long way away from the 1960s and the era of Gamal Abdel Nasser and, and his central role to all of Arab political life. And we've seen a kind of slow, incremental degradation of, of Egypt's political role um, regionally and its ability to exert influence to the extent it still does and remains relevant to regional politics, it's mostly having to do with its, <clears throat> it's near abroad. It's, it's the, the, the areas in, in which it has geographic interest, whether that be Gaza, Libya, or Sudan. But it is a much diminished Egypt. And the fact of Saudi and, and UAE playing this prominent role in Sudan, exerting power across the Red Sea, it's not something that goes down well in, in Cairo. It's another reminder of the ways in which Egypt has become a diminished regional actor. And you overlay that with the, the issues surrounding Gulf economic assistance to, to Egypt, which is a very live question at the moment as Egypt goes through its own very acute economic crisis. And the, these are you mentioned close supporters of of Egypt in in recent years, but these are not easy relationships at the moment. And you know, it, it it's a tough period overall for Egypt's ties with two of its most important Gulf partners. Mm. So you know, Egypt felt squeezed out by this quad. At the same time, its relations with Riyadh and Abu Dhabi are not trending in a in a good direction. You know, there's a lot of conjecture and reports and semi-rumors, but in the in the you know the months and weeks leading up to this conflict, as you had this escalation between Burhan uh, in the army on one side and Hemeti on the other, you know, Egypt did find itself in the middle of this, uh, both you know both because I think it's they were seen as the army's main backers, but also sort of conspicuously were the major outside actor who didn't appear fully committed to this December agreement to hand over civilian rule, but also because, you know, in the in the days leading up to the to the outbreak of conflict in Khartoum, you had Hemeti's forces surround this base in Meroe where, you know, and he demanded 
that Egyptian Air Force personnel essentially be removed, and it, the spotlight, I'm sure, on on Egypt there was was uncomfortable in Cairo. So, what can we say, you know, about this period of the run up to civil war and what Egypt may or may not have been doing? Yeah, I mean. You know, the presence of Egyptians in Sudan, there are bilateral agreements with the military that are public and well known. That's not a secret. I'm, I think people were generally maybe caught off guard a bit by by the presence of Egyptians in Sudan. And, and of course, Hemeti, this, this was in a, in a sense, this was a messaging exercise as well. And something of a warning, I think, to Egypt about potential interference in the, this kind of next phase. But some of the reporting about what Egypt was doing, I think, was was inaccurate, right? There was talk of airstrikes and special forces, and I've tried to sort of verify this. And, and, it, and it seems to me, based on conversations with U.S. officials, Egyptian officials, Gulf officials, that some of that reporting was exaggerated, really. And, and Egypt has not engaged directly in in the conflict. I think that is a fair assessment. I would also say that as with Saudi and the Emirates, I think Egypt was was caught off guard by the outbreak of fighting. I think the risk factors have been known to all for a very long time. And many people have been warning about the possibility of of a breakdown between Burhan and Hemeti. This is not a new issue at all. But in a sense, because it has, people have been warning about this for a very long time, since the sort of beginning of, of the transition period, following the ouster of Bashir, this, is, this has been a known vulnerability. And <clears throat> I, I still think, because of that, that in, in many ways, people were caught off guard. I, I don't think right. Egypt had a sense that this was inevitable. The risks and stakes were so high that I think people assumed perhaps that we would continue to muddle through. And as part of that, I think I think Egypt is not looking for a kind of all-out war. And to the extent they perhaps hoped for a quick Burhan victory, nonetheless, once fighting broke out, it's pretty clear that that's not in the cards now. And so I don't, I don't see Cairo as trying to egg on a, a full-on military confrontation. I think it's pretty clear to Egypt that this is not a military fight that is going to be an, a kind of easy victory that is going to produce good results in terms of, of Burhan having an easy path to reestablishing his authority. So I think you know, that is, that is a, a plus for diplomatic efforts because I, I don't think any of the outside parties is is angling for a major all-out war. We haven't seen a kind of proxyization of the conflict. I think that would would really be a very disturbing development, one that is possible, depending on how the outside actors proceed. But I, I think most of the interested parties want to avoid that outcome. And, and I, I put Egypt in that camp as well, because I think it's very clear that this war is not going to be short or quick and if it were to escalate. And there's there's very little prospect for a kind of undisputed military victory emerging from, from this situation. I, I suppose the key question that comes up in regards to Egypt in, in current conversations I have on Sudan and the diplomacy around it press for a ceasefire, um, you know, there's a tension of sorts behind 
wanting this conflict to end, but also not wanting, you know, in Egypt's case, the, the army to lose. And questions then of how much pressure is Cairo willing to sort of put on Burhan and army officers to to seriously negotiate an end to this conflict. Where do you think Cairo falls um, on that spectrum? It's a good question. I mean, I think the, uh, the other question attached to that is what pressure can they bring to bear? That's a bigger question for diplomacy at the moment. What leverage is there to, to bring to bear against these actors and, and who can do it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think e- Egypt... There is a question of, of, the, of the kinds of power it can bring to this discussion. Egypt's not a major economic benefactor. Obviously, it has strong diplomatic ties. It has played an important role in terms of, of providing diplomatic support to, to Burhan. There are these military agreements. And it's unlikely that, that Egypt would exert pressure in such a way that it it might do permanent damage to its its relations with with the Sudanese armed forces. So I think it's fair to question how much pressure Egypt would be willing to to bring, but f- for me I'm I also wonder what whether Egypt has the capacity to be effective in terms of trying to 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 influence its its Sudanese partners on a different path. And I think the same question can be Pose with respect to outside actors and their capacity to to force outcomes on, on the RSF. I think there are pathways again for trying to leverage connections and to bring to bear coercive power. I'm not sure the UAE and others are are willing to do that. Maybe that's something that will become a topic of further discussion if if the conflict really deepens and it becomes clear that. These efforts at a kind of near-term ceasefire are are not going to produce an agreement, a sustainable agreement, and and we might be nearing that point because obviously the ceasefire efforts are are failing, and the viability of of the Saudi Saudi U.S. led process in Jeddah, I think, is is something to be concerned about at the moment. Mm. Yeah, U.S. officials have been warning me. I think warning us for. A while that the Jeddah talks are essentially on the brink of collapse. Um, although what comes next is is another question. So, uh, stepping a bit back from Egypt, you know, from your talks with American officials, Gulf officials, Egyptian officials, do you think there's another way of restructuring this mediation that could better sort of create a more united front, might have some more success in getting traction uh, with these two? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, the kind of. There are multiple processes, and at one level, you could imagine a kind of division of labor. That's the kind of best-case outcome in which perhaps the Jeddah talks are focused on ceasefire and, and the political tracks are taken up perhaps by the AU and, and others. But at the moment, it looks, I wouldn't say uncoordinated, but the coordination is not is not great, and there are these multiple tracks. There's no great traction for any of them. I think that's reflected of the situation. I'm not sure that, that the structure and modalities of diplomacy are determinative at this stage. And I think there is this question of what to do with Egypt and how to involve them and whether the Quad is the, is the most appropriate mechanism by which to kind of structure lead diplomacy on, on, on the issue at the moment. 
I, I tend to think that locking Egypt out of diplomacy, and, and of course the Americans and others would say, you know, we are in constant contact with our Egyptian partners and, you know, we, we coordinate with them regularly. They're not locked out, but it clearly, this setup clearly creates a sense of isolation for Egypt. And I don't, I don't think that's particularly wise. I think that's that's a mistake in a sense. Again, I don't know that it's determinative, but I don't know. I, I think it, it's it doesn't help in terms of encouraging constructive engagement on on the part of Egypt. You know, I think as we mentioned, the Jeddah process looks potentially to be on its on its last legs. And again, I, I think that's more to do about the calculations of of the armed actors on the ground, less to do perhaps about the, the modalities of diplomacy. And then finally, you know, Egypt, of course, also, it helps lead the the Arab League on one side, uh, which has endorsed this Jeddah track, but it's also a, a major member state within the African Union. And, and as you mentioned, the, the AU is also, you know, is leading this coordination group, this extended mechanism, and, and then this core group, and has promised a political process on Sudan. How does Egypt view the African Union taking a, a leading a leading role on Sudan? So Egypt's, just to step back for a moment, Egypt's relations with Africa, I think in the run-up, and I am stepping back a few years here, but in the in the run-up to the, the uprising in, in 2011 in Egypt, when, when Egypt was really focused on internal issues of succession, there was the effort to, to, to basically engineer uh, Hossein Mubarak's son, Gaman Mubarak, as, as his successor, it was a period of of inward focus, and one of the things that really atrophied in, in that in that time period was Egyptian diplomacy in Africa. It was neglected. I think you can you can chalk up some of the kind of early developments with with respect to the GERD to a kind of inattention on on the part of Egypt and. Immediately after this period of, of neglect and drift, you then have the Egyptian uprising, which really upends, uh, uh, you know, Egypt, upends at the same time Egypt's uh, diplomatic activities. Um, and so, again, as the, as the GERD is getting underway, you have this tumultuous period. And again, one of the things that suffers is Egypt's approach to Africa. And it, as the GERD is, is happening, as facts are being created on the ground, one of the things that Egypt becomes very aware of is the need to revitalize its 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 diplomacy in Africa. And we've seen some of that. Egypt has been much more focused about engaging with other Nile partners. I think there was a sense of, of trying to create some diplomatic momentum and consensus in terms of Egypt's views on, on, on Nile water issues. All, all of that to say there is a, a kind of long back history in, in recent years to Egypt's approach to Africa, and 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 I, so I think its views of the AU process are, are bound up with with some of that recent history. I think there there are other partners who are suspicious and worry about the the Jeddah process, worry about the centrality of of the Saudi role. I think the the armed actors themselves seem to to favor that track. I don't know if that's a a plus for that track or not. But I think Egypt does have some some questions there, and but I think there it it is it is still a slightly uncomfortable it's slightly uncomfortable 
managing this issue through all of these multiple tracks. And, and so there is a touch of concern about what the AU track will do and, and whether it will supersede those other tracks and, and how Egypt can, can engage with that track. We're running out of time. So to pivot slightly or expand out, I should say, another crisis, if we can call it a, an active crisis or a perhaps a very slow boiling one, that crisis group very much focuses on is the long-running dispute over GERD. To be a bit crude, the um, the overriding sense from diplomats and officials working on this issue over the past year or so, I would say, is that Ethiopia has, you know, in some ways won the battle, if you will, over GERD. And, you know, GERD is a reality and Egyptian diplomacy has been unable to stop it in the, in the ongoing, what were the tripartite talks between Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia had more or less stalled out um, and were unlikely to lead anywhere. How does, how does Egypt view this situation and, and essentially what's its plan moving forward? I'm not sure that they know what their plan is moving forward. I think the, the plan for a long time was to try to internationalize diplomacy. There was hope that perhaps the U.S. could push Ethiopia, exercise leverage in a way. There was an effort to, to, to raise the issue at the Security Council that went nowhere. And as you mentioned, there are facts on the ground. And the other component here is Egyptian public opinion. And of course, it, it is an authoritarian setup, but public opinion still matters. Egypt has raised this as a kind of existential crisis, this, that this is an existential issue for Egypt and the animating rationale of kind of military-backed political order is the reimposition of of stability and, and the guarding of, of national security. And GERD is at the heart of all of that. And so it it really does make the possibility of compromise quite difficult. And so there are and continue to be, although the the, the fighting in Sudan will obviously complicate this, but there are efforts to mediate. And I think it's an open question what Egypt could really agree to as a matter of domestic politics. And it's clear that the kinds of binding agreements that they have long talked about in terms of in terms of the GERD, in terms of water management, and particularly in, in drought conditions, the, that looks quite unlikely, the possibility of arbitration and these kind of core features of, of what Egypt has been talking about for for many years looks very unlikely. And there have been suggestions of, of kind of halfway measures that might address most of, of Egypt's concerns. And that and, and that's where I think there is a real open question of, of whether, even if Ethiopia was willing to go down that route, whether... Egypt, at, at this moment, having raised the issue in the way that it has, is in a position to, to enter into that kind of arrangement. And so I think that's, that's, that's an open question at the moment. Obviously, again, the fighting in Sudan complicates the, the, the possibility for having concerted focused diploma, diplomacy on this issue. And, and of course, then that becomes a real question for Cairo. How can you engage on this really critical topic in, in any form or fashion when Sudan is, is undergoing this kind of turmoil. And so I think it does, it does really highlight how important Sudan is to Egypt, how instability in Sudan has direct bearing on 
on Egyptian, on Egyptian interests. And it's fair to wonder what this next period of, of drift will, will do to, these, to, the, to the dynamics around GERD discussions. A more general question. When we talk with actors in East Africa and the Horn of Africa about Egypt, they're viewed basically that their maximum pressure campaign on Ethiopia about GERD, it, it obviously hasn't worked. On Sudan, you know, many felt like they had warned Egypt that military rule in Sudan was fundamentally unstable, also wouldn't work. You know, and there's a sense that strategically Egypt has made itself a player, but perhaps is is losing, you know, on, on most of its core interests in the Horn of Africa. Is that how it's viewed in, in Cairo? And will there be a reckoning about Egyptian policy towards the Horn or any sort of pivot at some point, do you think? I think with respect to the GERD, that's, it's, it's already happening in a sense. I think there are real questions and the open debate is not, is not encouraged at the moment in, in Cairo. So I think a full reckoning under this political order is hard, but I think Egyptian reticence to, to enter into halfway arrangements with Ethiopia highlight the ways in which, even in this authoritarian setting, the domestic politics does matter. And, and of course, there are other constituencies in that domestic politics. And I, and I list among them the, the kind of security sector, the, the kind of key backer of, of Sisi in, in Egypt. And so I, I, I do, I, I think it's fair to wonder what that discussion looks like, because as you mentioned, there was a little bit of traction with others regarding Ethiopia's behavior. So it's not that, that nobody shared some of Egypt's concerns around Ethiopian unilateralism, but it's also fair to say that Egypt has effectively lost the diplomacy around the GERD, and its approach to Sudan hasn't hasn't paid dividends. And I do think questions have been asked. I'm sure that, that those questions may increase depending on on what happens, particularly in in this in this latest phase in Sudan. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again, I, it's sort of starting at the outset in terms of talking about how Egypt has gone about trying to protect its interests in Sudan. I, I think it's a very fair question whether this approach has been a wise one, whether reverting to the kind of known playbook has paid dividends, and and of course the the kinds of creative diplomacy it would require for Egypt to engage with a kind of shifting set of civilian actors, that it's hard. And, and based on Egypt's own history with Sudan, it's not even clear that that's possible in an effective fashion. But again, I do, I do think it's, it, it's likely to be a source of some discussion now and, and, and particularly at a later date, because as you say, Egypt's chosen approach hasn't, hasn't borne fruit. Mm. And just one final question. Saudi Arabia, you know, I was I was in Riyadh in in March. You know, they're worried about this potential civil war between Burhan and Hameti, which of course did come to pass. But they, you know, Saudi officials also talked a lot about this Red Sea Council, which they have formed but hasn't really met yet. And Egypt has reservations about this sort of rising uh, Saudi role, um, you know, over the Red Sea. Can you talk about that? One of the things that was was deeply concerning to to Egypt in in recent years is is the kinds of external relationships and 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 in, in involvement in Sudan and we saw this not just with with the Saudis but with the Turks even with the Russians and their efforts to secure a military installation on the Red Sea Egypt doesn't want to see any of this including heightened Saudi engagement on Sudan and, and Red Sea issues 
again, it, this is seen as this is a, a neighboring country to Egypt, and it doesn't want to see Saudi and other outside actors having kind of logistical or military footprint in Sudan, in and around the Red Sea. It's undertaken a major modernization effort in terms of its its military capacity and, and naval power has been at the core of that. And Egypt, I think, is alive to the idea that it needs to do more to be able to project power in the Red Sea. And I think the Egyptian military believes that that has been a kind of neglected capacity. And so you have this major effort to, to boost Egyptian military power, naval power, at a time when, when you have increasing focus on the Red Sea and, and the multiplicity of actors trying to get involved in the region right on Egypt's border. You know, it's bound up with, with not just concern about Saudi, but about other actors having, having a foothold and being able to project military power in an area that is seen as, as sort of critical to Egypt's own national security. Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a podcast of the International Crisis Group, produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.